Welcome to the Amber Mac Show. I'm Amber Mac. Today's episode is all about self-care through the lens of technology. Let's face it, there's a heavy fog hanging over the world right now, and while the sun is trying to peep through, every day brings new challenges. But there is hope with a little hard work. I'm going to chat with two well-known researchers and professionals about the topic of self-care to move us all forward towards the sunshine. The Amber Mac Show is powered by TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home. So you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. First up, Amy Morin started her career as a psychotherapist. And as she explains, eventually became an accidental author, now with three best-selling books. She's also the editor-in-chief at Very Well Mind and a psychology lecturer at Northeastern University. Her area of expertise and research is mental strength. Amy, I really wanted to start this conversation with your definition of self-care. How would you describe self-care for people out there who are perhaps confused about this term? So it's really about knowing when to take a step back and take care of yourself, and then also knowing when to push yourself. So sometimes it might be saying, I I deserve a break today, so I'm not gonna push myself to go to the gym. But on other days, it's about knowing "Ah, it's really good for me, so I'm gonna do it anyway, even though I don't want to. So I always encourage people to get to know themselves and to figure out what's best for me today. And so good self-care is about knowing the answer to that so that you can push yourself appropriately without pushing yourself too much. I've always found on my own journey of self-care that self-care seems to be easier when times are good and more difficult when times are are challenging. And I would say that most people right now are really experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety. Many people have lost loved ones. I would love to talk a little bit about your experience in your 20s. You lost both your mother and your husband. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how that changed you and, and how you were able to start to think more about looking after yourself and self-care in terms of your journey? Yeah, I was a therapist. And so my work was about teaching other people how to be mentally strong. But when I lost my mom and then when I lost my husband within three years of each other, it really became a personal journey of how do you build mental strength? And a lot of it had to do with knowing that it was okay to be sad. It was okay to grieve, that that was part of the process but that at the same time I had to push myself to do things that I didn't want to do. And one of the things I learned about the people in my therapy office is some of the most mentally strong people, they had good habits, but what was really important, what really separated them from other people was what they didn't do. They didn't have certain bad habits. So part of my self-care became about making sure I didn't do those certain things. Like I didn't want to feel sorry for myself. I didn't want to give up if I failed. I wanted to figure out how do I give up those bad habits in a way that my good habits become much more effective because I'm a fan of saying let's work smarter and not just harder. It's interesting too to think about uh, that theme within all of the books that you've written talking about things that mentally strong people don't do. Many people like you said are focusing on things that we do do in terms of those good habits. Can you talk about some of those 13 things that you address within your books and maybe a couple of the, the most prominent habits that people should think about breaking? Out of all of the ones for my first book, the one that people want to talk about the most tends to be that mentally strong people don't give away their power. And that one's really about saying, I'm in control of how I think, feel, and behave, and nobody else is. So your mother-in-law, your boss, they can't make you feel bad about yourself. 
unless you let them. And so taking back your power is about saying, I'm in control of how I think, feel, and behave no matter what's going on around me. I'm not going to give anybody else the power to ruin my day or the power to ruin my self-esteem. A huge one. But when you take back that power, you empower yourself to live your best life. You can create a lot of positive changes. I'd say another big one is about not resenting other people's success. It's a really tough one, especially in the age of social media. We look around at other people and think, oh, that person's doing better than I am. They have what I want. I can never be like that. The studies are pretty clear. If you want to look around at other people and be inspired by them, then we need to look at them as opinion holders rather than competitors. So if you just looked at other people and you th think, well, that person has knowledge that I could benefit from, or that person has something that uh, I could benefit from knowing, a skill that I could learn from them, then you won't get resentful. But when you start to resent other people's success, it takes your eyes off of your own journey. And when you get distracted, you stop focusing on your goals, you lose sight of what's important and it becomes much harder to, to move forward in life. Let's talk a little bit about social media. I laughed out loud when I watched your TED talk and I know there are 15 million other people who have also watched it. You started with a story about social media and how it makes us feel. I would love to dive into that a little bit. And, and why do you think that has resonated with so many people? Yeah, so when I started my TEDx talk, I talk about uh, how often do you look around and at your friends' lives and think, gosh, they, they look perfect. And then I ask, and how often do you do that and you don't really like that person? And of course, almost all the hands in the audience go up. And I think it resonated because it's true. It's something that so many of us can relate to, that when you look at your friends, your social media contacts, and they're on vacation, that they bought a new car, they're talking about their family and their jobs, that they often seem to be doing so well. And there's a part of us that thinks, oh, my life isn't as good. I wish I could be like that. I wish my life could be better. And when we start thinking that way, uh, it just becomes, it makes us feel bad. And when we feel bad, we're less likely to do things that are helpful. And then the more we keep thinking about how awful our lives are, it's a vicious cycle that becomes hard to break. And so I always encourage people to pay attention to that. How do you feel when you're looking at social media? There's a lot of studies that have said that envying people on social media is directly linked to depression and just becoming more aware of that and how it causes you to think about yourself is really important. So let's uh, circle back to this theme that we started with, which is self-care, especially during a pandemic, because again, I think it's so easy for people to say, you know what, I'm just going to sit this one out and just wait for the, this thing to end before I start thinking about myself. Can you give people some practical things that they can do in terms of just ensuring that self-care is front and center and, and that people do, again, take that time to focus on their, their mental health as well as their physical health? So I think one of the most important things is to limit the amount of media that you're consuming. For people who are just scrolling through social media all day long or watching the news because we feel like, oh, I want to stay up to date, I want to know what's going on. But studies will show that watching the news elevates your blood pressure, it increases your heart rate for about 20 minutes after you've shut it off. And so if you're constantly consuming media all day long, your body stays in a heightened state of stress. So reduce the amount of media that you consume and be mindful of it. Because so many people are working from home, we're not going out as much, we tend to pick up our phones and scroll through social media a lot more often. And that again affects our mental health. So I think to be much more mindful of how much time you're spending watching the news or consuming media and to pay attention to those channels, what you're watching and who you're following. And then another big one is to figure out, well, what does self-care look like right now? 
maybe back before the pandemic, you would go to the gym, you'd exercise, or you spent time with friends. Some of those things may not be available to you now. So you need to say, well, how do I create a new self-care routine? Maybe it's about reading a book. Maybe you decide that you're going to work out in your living room, but to really just carve out some new strategies that work for you right now and to know that you can experiment. What works for somebody else might not work for you and that's okay. And you just keep experimenting until you figure out, well, what helps me to feel more alive? What invigorates me? What helps me to, to think and feel my best? And when you find those strategies, keep with it. It's been fascinating to, uh, like you, I started a podcast during COVID-19. I know you also have a new podcast out. And through interviewing people, it really strikes me that there is a lot of learning that's going on right now as people perhaps have a little bit more flexibility to think about their lives and what they want to be doing. For you during the past few months, uh, in terms of your own self-care journey, what have you learned about yourself during this time? I guess, again, a lot of the things that I did before the pandemic aren't necessarily applicable now. I used to travel a lot for work and uh, I used to go to the gym a lot more, those sorts of things. But actually what I found now, I live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys and spend a lot of quiet time just inside my boat working. So it's not like I need more quiet time. What I found was I needed more excitement. So right now, self-care for me is about jumping on my wave runner and driving really fast through the ocean. And that's what helps fuel me, helps me feel more alive. So I always tell people what worked for you before the pandemic might not work now. That was my specific circumstance, but to just keep looking around and figuring out what, what do I need more in my life today? And as long as it doesn't introduce new problems in your life or it doesn't make your existing problems bigger, then it can definitely be a form of self-care. Excellent. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Carlin Purcell is a certified emotional intelligence and neurolife coach. She's appeared on Oprah's Life Class, among other broadcast shows. And she's also the creator of the world-famous Success Planner. One of the things that we've been talking about is this concept of self-care. And the first thing I want to ask you is, how do you define self-care? I always start with the very first letter, a word I would say in self-care, which is self. In order for you to define what your self-care strategy is, you first need to understand who is the self that you're defining care for. So I actually encourage leaders and my clients to really spend a lot of time with self. And by self, I mean S stands for what is the story you're telling yourself about the person who's looking for self-care? So for example, are you looking for self-care because now you're in pain or life has sent you some really hard notifications that you can no longer um, ignore? E stands for how are you expressing yourself? Are you using other people's lens? Are you using you know, the lens of the history of your family, your parents? Maybe you come from a family where self-care wasn't prioritized. So every time you try to do self-care, it comes with a lot of, for lack of a better word, baggage right? L stands for how are you leading yourself? Where, where, where's leadership coming from? Is it coming from a place of knowing or is it coming from, you know, social media or something you see some celebrities doing and, and they're defining it as, as, as self-care? And F stands for how are you dealing with your fail forward, right? And, and for me, all of that really defines who we are as self. It really helps to form an identity. And once you get clarity on that, that gives you some more insight into what care can look like for you. So I often say self-care is a very personal prescription that individuals write for themselves along the journey of life. 
It is definitely a, a fabulous definition. And, you know, one of the things I, I find over the years that's happened with self-care is a lot of people assume that it's a selfish act. Uh, would you be able to talk about that in terms of how you see self-care uh, for the individual? I love that question, Amber. It actually... Uh, you touched on something that I've been saying a lot as a little bit controversial, but I think that people will fully appreciate it in, in a way of really getting closer to defining a self-care prescription that works for them. I often say to redefine selfishness as a form of self-care. Because we come from a society where, you know, the hustle or the striving, or often I call it the three Ps, which is something I learned from my virtual mentor, Dr. Brené Brown, which is performing, perfecting, and pleasing. So many of us are coming from that train, that treadmill, I would say that. So selfishness feels like a burden when it comes to our self-care practice. So I often say trick the brain because everything we do is coming from a brain-based perspective. And actually one of the biggest pieces of technology that we get to work with is our brain. So redefining self-care as selfishness, it invites a little bit more curiosity and insight so that Whatever feelings, whether it's, it's guilt, it's, it's fear, it's shame, because emotions are data. And by understanding where we stand on our definition or even our personal expression of selfishness, it will give us some insights into, hey, maybe I need to take a deeper dive around why am I feeling selfish when I'm sitting down and doing nothing, right? Maybe there's an opportunity to reframe here. Or are you doing self-care or are you looking at selfishness as something to drive you into more self-deprecating behavior. So I, I, I see selfishness as, a, as an opportunity for people to invite some more dialogue around self and to look at some of the patterns and the conditioning that we may have unconsciously inherited from our past, from our parents, from the various social institutions that we hold or we, we, we root our belief and our value system in. Because for the most part, we have been driven by this. And if we don't examine it in our present lifestyle and our present goals and where we'd like to go, we end up perpetuating a definition of selfishness that doesn't work for us. Uh, very good points, you know, and it's interesting, you touched a little bit on technology, and I wanted to talk about the impact of social media, particularly Instagram. I, I still struggle with this in terms of understanding the role of Instagram in my life. I think for many people, especially women, it can make you feel great. Uh, it can make you feel terrible. Where do you lie in terms of the role Instagram plays? Um, I'm similar to you where I have a love-hate relationship with it. I, I understand that it's important and there is an opportunity for us to leverage the data and the information. Even for myself, I grew up without any form of technology. I only had this technology, right? The human technology. So if I, I, I appreciate it because it has extended my insight and access to different people and different viewpoints and perspectives that I can try on. But at the same time, it can be damaging if I'm not aware of my emotional and social boundaries. And sometimes we can get caught up in the rabbit hole of self-care or following people or suggestions or things that people are sharing online. And when it doesn't work for us, we actually end up putting more strain and pressure on ourselves. So sometimes social media can be a contributor towards our lack of self-care or in some cases pushing a, pushing us into that stress boundaries or you know that stress zone so i say again define it for each individual like pay attention to your emotional data when you're online are you doom scrolling do you find yourself going for that emotional hit because also emotions are addictive so it's important for us to understand what we're going through what we're feeling be be present with your social media because it will inform you how technology is impacting your life. Technology is good, it's important, we can use it, 
but we need to make sure that we're using it as a tool to enhance our lives and not to detract us from our current goals and intentions. What about uh, your community in terms of the the friends that you have and the role that they play in your self-care? I often have friends who are upset with me because when I got home from work, I didn't spend an hour on the phone with them because I want to be with my family. Uh, They don't seem to necessarily get that. I also just need a little time to retreat. Uh, What do you say to those friends who don't understand that you need space? This is such a tough one. I often say to meet people where they are. For me, as a practicing empath or as someone who's daily trying to practice empathy and compassion, meeting people where they are, it gives me an opportunity to to see them in a human light. And by that, I mean, I often say that I'm not in the convincing role in my life. So if someone is a little bit upset that I am not spending time with them or they disagree with how I'm spending my time, I often see that as an opportunity to set better boundaries or to revisit what I call my conscious and unconscious friendship agreements, because it means that unconsciously I may have allowed some some, you know, uh, overstepping of certain boundaries. So that, and and that is where we can see that. We see that in in, in the discourse in terms of the friendship or people's opinion in terms of how we spend in your time. Because you know yourself best and you know what you need in the moment. And when you look at the pillars of resiliency also, Amber, community is such a huge one. It plays a huge role in ensuring that I build back those healthy boundaries and requirements that will actually help me to keep on building on my self-care routine and practice. So, so meeting people where they are means that you also have to give them the opportunity for them to sit and process their own emotional data because this is healthy. This is where we get to, you know, I love the work of Dr. You know, Lisa Feldman. Uh, she's the author of um, um, How to uh, Define Your Emotions. Like she's, she's big on emotional data. And she talks a lot about emotional granularity. And emotional granularity, what the research shows that the more we get aware and get clarity on our emotional data, it actually increases our resilience and it actually helps us to decrease our stress because we end up making better decisions and we end up choosing better rituals and practices that actually benefit us. So by by, by you not, you know, dropping your plans and trying to manage that emotional discomfort of your friend, you actually end up helping to become more emotionally resilient, which helps her to increase on her self-awareness piece, which also helps her in terms of creating a better self-care practice. I think as a society, we have gotten very uncomfortable with uncomfortableness. So a lot of us end up trying to appease and and make people feel better. But when we do that, we actually take away the opportunity for them to practice on their own self-care and their own, re- on their own resilience, which ends up affecting both parties. So it's nobody wins because you end up not spending time with your family and your friends. You end up not giving your brain the downtime it needs. And which means that you'll be less focused, a whole lot more frazzled. And again, that will also impact your life output and quality of your life, I would say as well. I love this idea of setting boundaries because I think you're right, especially for a lot of women. I know it's hard to put those boundaries in place uh, to better take care of yourself. The last question I want to ask you in terms of managing your time and thinking about self-care and success is your success planner. Uh, You gave me a success planner that I use and have. I know there is a, a new version coming out for 2021. So let's talk for a second about the role that can play in your self care journey. 
Absolutely. And actually, that's why I created it, um, Amber. Working in the tech industry for 20 years, um, when I moved from the Caribbean to Toronto, I continued my career on Bay Street in the tech space, working for one of the top five banks. And I realized that I got caught up in the bank's definition of success, which was always like, and as a senior project manager, managing, you know, two million, you know, dollar projects and up, uh, I was caught up in the, let's meet the deadline. Let's meet the deadline. Let's make sure everything is going out as prescribed. And I was caught up in the hustle. And I realized that, Carlin, what is your definition of success? And for me, success included my self-care, success included being brave enough to your point, Amber, asking for what I want, whether it's better boundaries in my personal life or in my professional life. It means raising my hand for, for asking for that particular thing. But most importantly, it also meant like defining or creating a definition of success that included my values, my belief system and what matters to me the most. So I took all the research from all my, my, my favorite, you know, emotional intelligence, you know, experts like, you know, Dr. Daniel Goldman, Travis Bradbury, uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman. Look at the positive psychology and the neuroscience around the brain because the brain is the most fascinating piece of technology we own. And I'm like, we need to spend more time talking about it. But also, how do we operationalize it, right? Because if you ask anyone, they'll tell you, hey, can I have another 24 hours in the day? So I know we cannot add more hours to the day, but can we use the hours we have better? Can we infuse those personal development nuggets throughout our day? And this is how the success planner came about. And the reason why I chose the tagline, making time for what matters the most, is to encourage people to explore and define what success looks like for them. And I'll give you a quick example. Within the planner, one of our area of focus every week is your main focus. And there were prompts throughout the journal to ask people, you know, what is your personal priority this week? Is it work? Great. Then focus on that deliverable and what is a report or a proposal you need to get to your client. Do that. What what if next week to your point, Amber, it's your family who needs your attention? You notice that there, there's a little bit of, you know, strain between you and your husband. He's not feeling seen or heard. Or sometimes I look at my husband, I'm like, I know we, you're here, but I feel like I haven't seen you. I don't know if you've been through that. You're like, I, yes. feel like I haven't seen you all week, even though, you know, we sleep in the same bed every night and you're home every day. So what I do is that I focus on him for that particular week. week. And there's a section in the planner that says, who do I who do I need to be of service to? We have a section for networking, but then who do you need to be of service to? And sometimes, again, that looks like my niece, my nephew, or maybe it's a client, or in some cases, maybe it's Carlin. Maybe I've ignored her needs for too long. And at the end of the month, in addition to a habit tracker, so you can track those habits to see, again, that personal self-care prescription, is it working for me? And if the answer is no, at the end of the week, we use a very simple yet effective strategy called the continue start stop. And we invite people to take a look at what really worked for me this week, this, you know, this month. Where did I really hit my self-care, you know, or my self-awareness or myself or my emotional clarity goals? What will you continue? The second one is what will you start? Maybe you notice that there is some opportunity for you to do better in some areas. Just write one note. What would you start? And the last thing is, which is something often people don't think about, which is a huge part of self-care, is what will I stop doing? Because the brain works on systems, it's important for you to chunk information for it so that you don't go into overwhelm, which in itself is a form of self-care. Writing things down is a form of self-care. Then people can use that now to continue building on your personal self-care uh, prescription plan week by week, month by month. And again, by the end of the year, you'll have some more insight and data in terms of what really works for you.
Well, listen, uh, I feel as though I got uh, a great lesson for myself, and I hope everybody else who is watching and listening uh, also has a chance to just dive into this idea of placing self-care really at the center of everything that you do to make sure you can serve yourself and serve others. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Amber. Before today's essay, a word from our sponsor. The Amber Max Show is made possible thanks to our partners at TP-Link. TP-Link is the number one provider of consumer networking devices that remove wireless pain points in your home, so you can live, work, and play in a connected and smart way every day. As one example, a TP-Link range extender can further your Wi-Fi signal. This means you can add a product like this to your existing network if there's one room or space where you want to extend coverage. For more information, visit TP-Link online. Here's today's essay. Ask 100 people what they think self-care is, and you'll get 100 different answers. Ask them what they do as part of their personal self-care practice, and you'll get 100 more. To some, self-care is a general series of things they do in their day-to-day lives to ensure their overall health, comfort, and peace. Things like regular exercise, a healthy diet, eight hours of sleep, and therapy. To others, it's something done outside of the boundaries or structure of their lives, almost as a reward. Things like ordering in instead of cooking, enjoying a cheap meal after a week of clean eating, or even watching The Bachelorette. No judgment there. To others, still, it's an individual act or action performed or experienced during a period of high stress. A mindfulness practice, a guided meditation, a long walk outside, or designated device-free time. Some experts suggest there needs to be a distinction made between what we refer to as self-improvement and self-care. After all, for some, self-improvement can start from a place where the self is flawed or deficient. Exercising is good and can be part of a self-care practice, but exercising to lose weight because there is a direct relationship between your weight and how you feel is a different thing. I'm not saying that people shouldn't want to improve. We should, I do. But it's probably important to remember that self-care isn't about improvement. It's about starting from a place of worthiness and, with that in mind, doing and practicing things to maintain it. Maintain is actually a good word to use here. Self-care is the maintenance we do on ourselves to give us the best chance to thrive. According to an article in Psychology Today, learning how to eat right, reduce stress, exercise regularly, and take a time out when you need it are touchstones of self-care and can help you stay healthy, happy, and resilient. Notice the framing here, eating right and exercising to stay healthy, happy, and resilient versus doing it to improve or to reach a goal. I personally practice self-care by exercising regularly, even if it's just for a few minutes, getting enough sleep, which sometimes means I go to bed at the same time as my 11-year-old, and 20 years ago, quitting alcohol for good. I can go into more detail about this in one of our Instagram or Facebook Live chats, but for now, I'm more interested in exploring the intersection of tech and self-care and how tech may be both a problem and a solution. According to TechCrunch, in the first quarter of 2018, the top 10 grossing self-care apps in the U.S. earned $15 million in combined iOS and Android revenue and $27 million in worldwide revenue. At the end of last year, TechCrunch updated those numbers to reveal that the top 10 highest-grossing meditation apps of 2019, which are a subset of self-care apps, grew to $195 million. That's a 52% year-over-year increase. 
This growth may sound confusing because for some people, the technologies we use at work and in our personal lives are the major stressors in our lives. This isn't surprising. Numerous studies have revealed a relationship between screen time and social media use, leading to an increase in anxiety and depression. We now spend a good chunk of our days online, and those minutes and hours are only rising. This is the downside of the increasing digital nature of life and work. Even when we're excited about a given technology, it seems unavoidable that we're soon going to feel burdened by that same thing. Six months ago, everyone was excited about Zoom, and now we complain about Zoom fatigue. If tech and general overload of screens is contributing to your stress and general unease, then your personal self-care practice should obviously mean that you limit tech-related strategies. Maybe you enforce device-free and screen-free zones of your home and device and screen-free hours of the day. Practice not bringing your phone, tablet, or laptop into bed with you is one example. There are also ways to block various websites on your desktop like Rescue Time, Freedom, Cold Turkey Blocker, and Self-Control. Freedom and Forest are also good options for your phone and work on both iOS and Android. You can even set timers to limit or police your time on certain apps like Screen Time on iOS devices and Google's Digital Wellbeing for Android. For millions of people around the world, using the devices they're surrounded with for work, cultural, or personal reasons to pursue individual self-care mandates has increasingly become the way to go. Apps like Headspace, Insight Timer, and Calm are promoting the ideas and ideals of meditation and mindfulness and helping thousands of people achieve more restful sleep every day. I personally track my sleep and my peak periods for exercise using Whoop, a wearable device and app that gives me all the data I need to feel good. And remember, self-care applications don't have to be the Silicon Valley heavy hitters. Aloe Bud, described as a self-care pocket companion for iOS, features delightful retro graphics, a simple group of self-care reminders, and options to make notes and to journal. On that front, simple journaling apps like Grateful for iOS and 365 Gratitude for Android focus on clarity and gratitude. And speaking of gratitude, in a recent Globe and Mail article, writer Aaron Anderson shared this. Studies find that naturally grateful people are happier, more likable, and thus tend to have better relationships. Gratitude serves as a shield when disasters strike, and according to research based on interviewing survivors of 9-11 and hurricanes, people who were more inherently grateful were more resistant to negative emotions, more resilient in the face of adversity, and able to find meaning even when life is pretty rotten. Later on in that same piece, Anderson points to research that shows that the count your blessings, not burdens approach to daily gratitude is correlated with improvements in physical and mental health. But it merits mentioning that the scientific community doesn't have a consensus on this kind of thing. Now, COVID-19 has put us under an unreal amount of stress. It has lessened our ability to be there for ourselves, for our friends and our families. It may not seem like much, but developing or refining a self-care practice that works for you can be incredibly beneficial to your physical and mental health. As we walk forward into an increasingly uncertain future, our success and well-being has to start from within and bloom outwards. Creating and maintaining a self-care practice that works for you can go a long way towards meeting that future in the best shape possible and thinning out the fog that hangs overhead. That's it for this episode of The Amber Max Show. 
Thank you again to our partners at TP-Link and to our team at Amber Mac Media. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.